Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elisha will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake, the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you were to ask why Jesus died, you find in Scripture that there's not one right answer to that question. There are actually many right answers. Jesus died as the final Passover lamb that washed away our sins. Jesus bore our curse and took away the stain of sin. Jesus paid our debt. There are all these different illustrations and metaphors and word pictures all throughout Scripture, particularly the New Testament, that paint these different pictures, just showing us different facets, different angles of this is all that Jesus did for you on this night of Good Friday. Well, tonight and again on Sunday, I want to focus on a little different aspect that some of you may have grown up with this terminology, uh, but it's a very important idea of one of the things that Jesus accomplished first in his death and then in his resurrection. And that is the, the aspect of salvation known as Christus Victor or Christ the Victor. And just a simple dictionary definition, a victor is someone who defeats an enemy or an opponent. And so we need to understand tonight when we refer to Christus Victor, we have to ask, so, so who or what is it? that is the enemy of Jesus, that he is defeating, that he is, in fact, Christus Victor, that he is the victor. And to answer that question, we want to go back to the very beginning of the story where we're first introduced to that enemy. So in the very first chapters of the Bible, and I'm not going to reference necessarily one verse, but I'm just going to quickly retell the story of the Bible. In the very first chapters of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, we're introduced to God who has always been there. He is eternal from before the beginning of time as we think about it. But we're also introduced to the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve. And what we discover in the poems of, of Genesis 1 and 2 in particular is that human life is not the random or just coincidental outcome of time plus chance. The Bible says that God actually intentionally, deliberately made human beings in his image to reflect his likeness. And we get this idea of, of human worth, of human dignity. Like, why do our lives matter? Well, they matter more than anything because out of all created things, you were made in the image of God and you were made to find your identity and to find your delight in relationship with God, Father, Son, and Spirit. 
But in the third chapter of the Bible, Genesis 3, the enemy walks into the story. And probably most of you know, at least on some level, this story that disguised as a serpent, Satan comes into the Garden of Eden and strikes up a conversation with Eve, the first woman. And the very first words out of his mouth are essentially questioning the goodness and the trustworthiness of God. And that conversation goes something like this, planting seeds of doubt in Eve's mind, in Eve's heart. And he's basically like, hey, Eve, why aren't you eating the very best fruit in the whole garden? And she's like, well, because God told us not to. In fact, he told us not to touch it. And if we did, we would forfeit life. And Satan goes on in the form of this serpent to say, essentially, he says, that's ridiculous. God knows that in the day you eat it, your eyes will actually be opened and you'll know good from evil without needing reference to God. You'll just know it on your own. You'll become like God. And Eve is like, wow, thank you so much. I don't know why God was hiding that from me. You know, and what you're saying sounds really reasonable and really desirable. And she takes the fruit that God told them not to eat, and she eats it and gives some to her husband, Adam, and he eats it. And the Bible says, just like that, sin enters into our world because our first parents, Adam and Eve, listened to the voice of Satan, accepted his lies and temptation, and disobeyed God about the tree. And I have kind of like four points that we can kind of hang this story on tonight. And the first of those points is our plight. A plight is like a desperate situation. Because what happens is in that story, immediately Adam and Eve intuitively knew we've ruined everything. Immediately they begin to feel guilt and shame for what they've done. Immediately they're running off to to clothe themselves, to hide themselves in the bushes, even from God, from each other. They immediately become self-conscious, self-aware in a way that they never were before and that they were never intended to be. Immediately they begin to blame one another. They blame the adversary. They even blame God. And there's this whole turmoil, all this conflict. And that, that first sin you may know in the Garden of Eden is often referred to as the fall. It's when everything fell. And the punishment for that sin is often referred to as the curse. And if you don't know, God says, I have to expel you from this garden because you forfeited my presence. You have to leave. And God introduced them to just the natural consequences of sin, things like conflict and pain and futility. It's like you're going to continue to work the ground. You're going to continue to have children, but it's going to be far more painful and far more empty and vain than you could have ever imagined before this curse. Because of the curse, there is not just sin, but there is entropy, there's decay, there's death that's entered into the world. And we come to the pages of the New Testament as Paul is looking back at this situation that's now happened to everyone because of this curse. He describes it this way in Ephesians 2. Verses 1 and 2, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. And he goes on in Ephesians 6.12 to describe this conflict then, essentially between good and evil, between light and darkness, between God and his adversary, Satan. And he tells all of us, he says, we ourselves do not wrestle, and I think he means merely against flesh and blood. Like people that you see, and we think I have conflict with these people, but he says, 
We wrestle against the authorities, the rulers, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And what he's describing here is ever since that curse in Genesis 3, we have all lived under the power of sin, and I would say under the power of Satan, as he is the God or the, the highest ruler kind of of this world system that is arranged against God. And these verses in Ephesians, like all the rest of the Bible, are basically describing this cosmic battle between God and Satan, between God's rule and authority and kingdom and the authority and rule and kingdom of the devil. And what we learn in this story, and I, I'm sharing just our plight, is that Satan actually exercises a kind of dominion over us. That's what he's saying is, you are following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. You didn't know any better. You were trapped in darkness, trapped in ignorance, trapped in unbelief, trapped in rebellion against God. And we can't get out of that prison by our best efforts. That's how bad our situation is. And by the way, modern people scoff at this explanation of kind of the root of sin. And they look at, they look at things in our culture that they disagree with or that they, they would have a conviction against and say, well, I know that's good and I know that's evil. Why do you feel that way? And they would say, well, I don't, I don't know, but it's not this. It's not that there's actually forces, powers, kingdoms doing battle with each other. But I was just thinking over the last couple of weeks in preparation for this and just even turning on the news and seeing some of the, just the atrocities coming out of Ukraine. Does this not explain how and why people are able to do to one another some of the things that they do? So I think, you know, if, if your family had been attacked by a warring army and it was your family that's being tortured, raped, killed, I'm sure you could, you could have a kind of natural instinctive bitterness and anger and hostility where you want to go kill and return and not just kill but, but maim and hurt and torture and get back at. But there's really no explanation for going to just random innocent people that you don't have anything against and doing this kind of atrocity or the atrocity of the Holocaust or the atrocity of chattel slavery. And we could go on and on, the, the atrocity of 9-11 and we take a step back and we're like, doesn't it seem like in our world there are some really dark dominion forces that have authority and power over tons and tons of people? And the Bible's explanation makes perfect sense. He says there are spiritual forces of wickedness, of rebellion, that love to sow death and mayhem and destruction simply because they hate God. Okay, and that's our plight. We are in this desperate situation where we live under the curse. We live in the midst of this unseen battle, and the evil one is greater than we are. Okay? We are humans. He is a spiritual being with minions of spiritual beings. We can't escape. We can't win. We will die. So that's the plight. But there's also a promise because, again, going all the way back to Genesis 3, in the middle of God saying, here's this curse and here's this curse on the woman, and here's this curse on the man, and here's this curse on the soil itself and other living things. And here's this curse, he says, on the adversary, on Satan. And this is what he says in Genesis 3.15. This is God talking to Satan. And he says, I will put enmity, hostility, a war between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. 
He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And what you see in that first half of the verse is a very negative promise. The negative promise is like another consequence of the curse is you're constantly going to be at war. And it's this cosmic war and your children and their children and their children's children. So every generation of human beings is going to be locked in this battle. They're going to be in hostility with Satan. But then notice this positive promise in the second half of Genesis 3.15 where he says, speaking of the seed of the woman, he says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's God talking to Satan saying, you will go after the offspring of Eve and you will inflict very painful damage, but he will crush your head. And I want you to notice that this verse is actually promising a battle essentially between God and Satan, between light and darkness, between good and evil. But it's not, it's not like the yin and yang of ancient Chinese religion. And it's not like the force in Star Wars where you, you feel like I have these equal but opposite powers. And I guess they're just going to duke it out until one of them eventually dies and one of them wins. Because what we see in the first promise of Scripture here. Genesis 3.15 is, I want you to notice the wounds that are prophesied are extremely lopsided. Like it would hurt a lot to be struck on the heel by a venomous snake. But then when that venomous snake's head is crushed into the ground by the seed of Eve, that is a disproportionate outcome. Okay, And by the way, if you don't know, this, this verse is actually called the Proto-Evangelium or the first gospel. This is the first time right in the midst of the curse. It's the first time in Scripture, chapter 3 of the first book, where God actually promises, I have a solution to this curse. I have a solution to this cosmic battle. I will send my son, a seed of the woman, who will win. Okay? Now that brings us to Good Friday and the third point, which is the power, the power of Good Friday. And I want us to just pause for a moment because it is, it is a very good and a right and a beautiful thing to just think deeply, to meditate on the humanity of Jesus. The fact that he took on a body, he took on a flesh that could be wounded, that could be scarred. He took on blood that could be shed. Okay, but if we're thinking about who died on Good Friday, let's understand that the Bible also says this, this man, Jesus Christ, is the Son of God. The Bible says he is the creator of the universe. That's why he has power. He's not getting his power from someone else. He is eternally and fully God. And, and by the way, what we celebrate in the Christmas story is that God became one of us. The Son of God became the Son of Man. And actually, Matthew and Luke both trace his genealogy to show you he is a descendant of Eve. Okay, so Jesus isn't just some guy, some Jewish rabbi, some traveling miracle worker who stumbled into Jerusalem at Passover one year and got himself killed for being too vocal about politics or something. As the Nicene Creed says, he was very God of very God. That's who was on the cross on Good Friday. And as we go back to that question that I asked, so, so why did he die? Why are Christians furthermore gathering all over the world tonight in their time zones, to celebrate the fact that Jesus died? Why do we literally make the cross, which is an instrument of torture and execution, it's like the primary symbol of our faith? Why, why do we do stuff like that? And the answer is because, and Paul says it so well, it's because the weakness 
and the foolishness of the cross is the greatest and ultimate demonstration of the wisdom and power of God. Jesus, the Son of God, at his weakest is just sheer power that Satan cannot reckon with, that sin cannot reckon with. So Hebrews 2, 14 through 16 puts it like this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. So she's basically saying every other son and daughter of Eve and Adam, all these descendants, obviously they have a flesh and blood. So it says, so, so Jesus, the son of God, came and he had the same. He had flesh. He had blood. It's what we'll celebrate and commemorate here in a few minutes with communion. But going on, it says, he takes this flesh, he takes this blood that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And I want you to catch what that verse is saying. I'll read it again. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. What he's saying is Jesus destroyed the power of the devil by dying. And if you're like, wait, that, that's not right. You know, what about, what about Easter? Like, by rising again on Sunday morning, that's how he defeated the power of Satan. But that's clearly not what the text says. And Easter is really, really important. We'll get to that in a couple days, okay? Um, we're going to talk about Christus Victor and what he did on Easter morning that has never been done before and will never be done again. And it's for you and it's for me. But the text clearly says Jesus defeated, Jesus destroyed the devil, not when he rose from the dead, but when he died. So what is that about? Well, in the text, it says he has the power of death. Satan, the devil, has the power of death. In other words, Satan's weapon is death, okay? Just, just by sowing temptation like he did with Eve and getting all of us to just play God for ourselves and question the goodness of God and do our own thing. And, and oftentimes those things that we do don't seem that bad in and of themselves, but we, we play God. We all play God. And so we all die because we all sin. We all die because of the curse. And the curse keeps winning. You know, up until Jesus, the curse is batting a thousand. Everyone's sinning. Everyone's dying. And Satan is celebrating because he hates God. He loves death. He loves destruction. He loves crushing the image bearers of God that he rebelled against. Uh, but, but there's something that he didn't account for in this whole story that Satan didn't account for. And it's what Jesus does. So I said, death is his weapon. And if you sin, you die. And we all sin. Like, some of you are way better than others of you and maybe even better than me, but we still sin. We sin by what we do. We sin by what we say. We sin by what we fail to do. But what Satan doesn't account for is this. What happens if the innocent, sinless, perfect son of God dies for sinners, himself accursed on a tree? So what happens if an innocent person takes the curse? It's what Satan didn't account for. Because they, the, the biblical answer, the theological answer is if someone innocent takes the curse, then the curse is broken. The curse is undone. Okay? Galatians 3.13 puts it this way. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
And that word redeemed is like he could purchase our freedom from the curse of the law, not just when he rises from the dead, but when he actually lays down his life, a perfect, spotless, innocent sacrifice, breaking the curse. Okay? And I love the way that this is, this is pictured in um, one of my favorite portrayals of this in the Chronicles of Narnia in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Aslan the lion, who's like this Jesus figure, and he's been betrayed by Edmund, one of the four children that came in through the wardrobe from Britain into Narnia. And Edmund has not only betrayed his siblings for Turkish delight, for dessert, but he's also betrayed Aslan. He's betrayed truth. He's betrayed love. And one of the things I love about C.S. Lewis's portrayal of Narnia is he kind of gets this whole battle of two kingdoms thing that it's not just that you have individuals who sin and they die, but he, he pictures it as there's this white witch, a formidable adversary of Aslan, and she has power and authority to make it cold, to make it, you see the ways winter, to like freeze people and suck the life out of them. And you see this cosmic battle going back and forth and Edmund has betrayed everyone and everything that is good and right and he deserves to die. And the white witch knows it. Like I've killed one of the sons of Adam who came from the other world. Except Aslan steps forward and, and makes some kind of agreement in a tent. And we find out later Aslan, the perfect king, has decided that he will go to the stone table and voluntarily lay down his life. And it's kind of a gruesome scene if you've read the books or seen the movie of these hideous creatures that are like the minions of Satan that are celebrating death, that are celebrating destruction. And they're like in this battle of two kingdoms because we put Aslan, the king, to death, then there's no one to challenge our authority and we can just wreak havoc and we can reign and we can have dominion and we can enslave and we can be cruel and we can kill. And that's the picture. And there's all that celebration around the death of Aslan, him being bound and killed on that stone table. Um, but if you know the books and you know the story, like you don't even have to wait until he rises from the dead, like Easter, to know that the curse has already been broken. Now, this brings us to the final point, which is the paradox of Good Friday. Because even as C.S. Lewis is reflecting on the death of Jesus, and then trying to somewhat portray that in the death of Aslan, it's like, it's an inside story. It's like, do the good people in Narnia, do the bad creatures, the evil creatures of Narnia, does nobody realize the curse has been broken because it seems like evil continues to win for a period of time? You know, and you, you have this paradox where Good Friday tonight is going to leave us with these unresolved tensions because we're like, but I mean, but Jesus died and his body was bound and put in this borrowed tomb. You know, it, it, there, there's no evidence on Good Friday if we're just reading the story in so many different accounts. There's no evidence that he won anything. I mean, you can cheat and look forward to the rest of the story and be like, okay, cool, it ends well. All right, I love Easter. And we should love Easter. But, but here's the paradox, friends. The only thing that Jesus lost on Good Friday was his own life. He won everything else. 
And by him voluntarily going to a cross for us. It's like, it's like David and Goliath. You know how David is not just fighting a battle like I want to beat Goliath or Goliath is going to beat me. But David is going as a representative of all of God's covenant people. And if David wins, all of the covenant people win. And if David loses, all of the covenant people lose. That's what Jesus is doing when he goes to the cross. He's saying, as a representative, perfect, I can turn back. I can erase the curse of sin for everyone who would put their faith in me. And the reason we call Good Friday good is because as he goes, and I mean, he looks so passive, right? Just hanging on a cross, just laying down his life. And people even get this pacifist type of theology out of this text. But the reality is, even as he's nailed there and, and you see his body there, you realize theologically he is, he is doing battle royale with like the forces of darkness and he is crushing them in his weakness, which is true strength. And he's winning our freedom from sin. He's winning our freedom from the powers of darkness. He's winning our freedom from death. So I close from this, with this quote. One commentator says, Jesus died as our substitute and he bore our sin and guilt by voluntarily experiencing the full force of the rebel kingdom we have all allowed to reign on the earth. To save us, he experienced the full consequences of sin that we otherwise would have experienced. In doing so, he broke open the gates of hell, destroyed the power of sin, erased the law that stood against us, and thereby freed us to receive the Holy Spirit and walk in right relatedness to God. Thanks be to God.